bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless his holy name. And forget none of his benefits. Let's not forget his benefits. There are a multitude of them. Let's pray. Then we're going to read the scriptures from Romans 12. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to need them handy. But let's pray first. Our Lord, we come to your presence with thankfulness in our hearts. Our Lord, the word is is unlocked by the Holy Spirit so that we can read and understand and we can live by it. Thank you, Father, for what you've done in our lives, that we who have come to know Christ through faith in him, and Lord, that you've put us in that righteous standing before you, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ did, who he was. Thank you, Lord, for that forgiveness which has come in him in such a bountiful way to wash us and cleanse us and to cleanse our consciences and to give us a new motivation, a new desire, a new way of thinking. Oh, a new way of thinking. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray for those who can be, cannot be with us for their reasons, which are in some cases because of sickness and then there's travel. Mercies for them. And so wherever your church is scattered, I pray that you will use each of them that are not with us as your witnesses. Witness to the gospel, the transformation of life that's in Christ. And our Lord, we thank you that uh, you've spared us as a nation, though we do see our civilization crumbling in many ways. Yet we know that you do not change. You are the same today, yesterday, and forever. Thank you for that hope, for that assurance. Now I ask that as we look at your word, that you will open our eyes, that we can see, we can understand and that your Holy Spirit will search out our hearts and see if there be any hurtful way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. We need you, Lord. Encourage those who are faint-hearted. For those, O oh Lord, who are weeping within because of pain or sorrow or whatever the reasons, oh, I pray that the, the freshness of your comfort will come into our midst and to our lives and hearts this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I have just a, a little housekeeping to take care of before we read scripture. I'm going to be reading Romans 12. And a friend of ours, some of us know him uh, from years past, uh, Stuart Scott. Uh, Dr. Scott was his, his father. He came and did a Bible and uh, a creation conference for us for some years ago. Well, Stuart is uh, going to be <coughs> at the um, Faith Bible Church, and the title is Discerning the Will of God. And, <coughs> excuse me, he's a counseling and, it's a counseling and discipleship conference. It's April the 29th, so if you want to go, you got to pedal fast, because that would be next Saturday. And I have some of the brochures here, just you know, actually just reminders, little flyers. I've, I've known Stuart for, for many years, and... Uh, uh, he has some, uh, made a magnificent contribution. I know his one book, The Exemplary Husband, Every Man Ought to Have It and Use It. It's a reference book, and it's uh, so helpful. And so if you would like to sharpen up your thoughts with regard to this title, Discerning the Will of God, don't let that run by you without uh, pausing to, to look, about it, look at it and think about it. I happen to have been reading a, uh, a little bit in a catalog I get, 
habit I've had for decades. I get a catalog that gives all the latest books, Christian books being published. published. They have little blurbs in there about the books, and it's one way of not, you can't read every book, but you can read summations of the books. And one of those books, and there seems to be a cluster of these, uh, uh, this kind of book, and the author uh, tells us that there are five ways that you can, uh, if you follow these five steps, that you can discern the voice of God as God speaks to you. Well, that leaves me a little puzzled. Uh, not really puzzled. Uh, saddened that God has spoken in his word. And all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. But I say that to say this, lest I wander off into a mini-sermon, that um, there is this thing that's caught on in places where you've just got to get yourself tuned up so that you can actually hear the voice of God. We have the voice of God. It's his word. And I don't know if Stuart's going to be, I just look at the title, Discerning the Will of God. And okay, enough said on that. I'm going to drop these here. If you're interested and need a reminder, that would be next Saturday at uh, Faith Bible Church. Are, are you in Romans chapter 12? Now I'm going to read, and I'm going to read a lengthy section here because it's necessary. We've got to go upstream. We're downstream. And downstream, we're well into this. We're at the uh, 14th verse. So we need to go back upstream and see what has flowed into this. Now, if we really wanted to go upstream, we would have to go back to Romans 1, but we're not going to do that. Uh, it's needful, but we're going to have to go with the start here. So you with me? And follow along, and I'll make a comment or two along the way that I hope will be helpful. Paul now is drafting on, he's drafting on what he has just said in the 11th, first 11 chapters, <clears throat> the dense, dense, dense woods of biblical truth with regard to our justification in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and so based upon the mercies of God, the mercies which are bountiful, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the, is the will of God. And that determination will be the perception, the ability to understand and see what God commands, what he promises, the guidance that he gives in Scripture. That's I'm not reading scripture there. That's just a parenthesis. What is good and acceptable and perfect? For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to think not, to get that one in, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I want to alert you to something that is immensely important for where we're going to go today in verse 14 and following. The focus upon thinking and the connection between that and love to which we're called in this passage. Thinking, thinking. Actually, the title of the sermon, I have two titles, the one that's in the bulletin, but I would say transformed thinking might be the title I would put at the top. Transformed thinking. When we come to Jesus Christ, there is a process that begins, and we begin to think in an entirely different way than we had thought before we came to Christ. 
With that said, let's go forward. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing, so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now we are prepared, I hope we're better prepared, to see how we, where we are downstream, what has begun. We have those two commanding imperatives at the outset. The first is what? We are to be living sacrifices, dying daily. We win when we lose. One of those um, biblical uh, paradoxes as we understand what sacrifice means, losing ourselves for the sake of others. And don't be conformed to this world system. It's working constantly to compress us, to shape us into its patterns of thinking. So here we are again with this ongoing statement with regard to love. And what we have to dis, uh, dispel in our thinking is that just that, is that love is so automatically associated with emotion. And believe me, emotion is important when it comes to the matter of love. But thinking is at the center of love. We've got to be thinking right. So. This theme, as I pointed out, begins in a special way at verse 9 in chapter 12. What's to be our response when we meet opposition? We're going to be opposed as Christians. We're going to be opposed by those within the church and outside of the church. How do I know this? Well, we're going to see in the coming chapters, 14 and 15, and we know it in 1 Corinthians, it consumes a huge portion of that book, 
that there were some serious, serious troubles with regard to relationships in the Corinthian church and in the church at Rome. You had Jewish believers and you had Gentile believers. They came from different backgrounds. They had different ways of looking at things, different perspectives, and created tensions and difficulties. Keep that in mind. So here is where we come then when in love. Let's, let, let's invite love into the room. It walks in. It tells us, shows us, gives us specific ways in which love should behave, how it should, we should be thinking if we love. So the change, with this, with this uh, additional thought here, the changed lives of Christians was a powerful, powerful force in advancing the gospel in the first centuries. One of the best things you can do in your Christian life is have some exposure to church history. We've taught a course or two that through the years, and church history is so important. Church history didn't begin the day that you were born again. <laughs> and that what you can find in the early, that in the early centuries of the church, there was this powerful force at work that just ultimately transformed the Roman civilization. How? It was through the changed lives of God's people. It was inexplicable ways in which these lives were changed in contrast to the darkness of the age in which they lived, just rife as it was with idolatry. So, what this gives to us in this passage, it gives us the opportunity to examine our reactions to others. How is the, what's the impact of my life and your life on others so that it would be, we would magnetize people to the gospel and have them want to ask questions and find out what's going on. Why do we think this way? Why do we behave this way? Why do we relate to one another in this way? That's what what's uh, we face. Now, we've got a problem here, and here's the problem, and that is... Our civilization, I'm convinced, I had some conversations just last night with some people from various places and in a certain kind of gathering, and I said, our civilization is crumbling. I, I heard this from people saying it in other ways. Our civilization is crumbling. We're not the same kind of people, the same nation that we were. I'm not saying everybody was a Christian and now they're not. Not at all. But there has, was a Christianized effect that it took place at one time, and it's dissipated rapidly. One thing that's happened to us is we've been tribalized. Tribalized. You know what that's like? It's getting everybody divided up into his or her own group. Now, these groups exist in some form and fashion, but be careful. You've got to be careful with that. We are one. It's e pluribus unum. It's what? It's the one out of many. It's on our coinage. And, but tribalism has taken over. And so tribalism, and the media exploits this. It really does. It thinks it's, kind of, it seems to preen itself on its self-righteousness. But it's, uh, it exploits this. It exploits our differences politically, racially, socially, educationally, economically. And this is not healthy. We've red states and blue states. Okay, I get that. I understand the political aspect of that, but wait a minute. And it, it, you keep breaking it down into groups. And this is a real danger. And this is what the early church had to face. Well, they didn't have red states and blue states, but they did have their social, economic categories of people. You had slaves, you had freed people, 
you have all of these nationalities, ethnicities, and the religious backgrounds, you know, people coming out of idolatry, where there was no thought of the God of the universe, and then you have Jews who came out of their historical strength of the hero Israel, the Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. So these clashed and came in into the church in the first century. So all that to just simply say this, that we have our work cut out for us in a renewed way as a church, and how it's so we need to be reminded and take action so that the impact of genuine Christian living can be seen and known and identified and can become the doorway into gospels, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how does this happen? There are five statements. We're only going to go down through verse 16. You have some outline, you have an outline form there in the bulletin. There's not, if you are a prolific note taker, that's obviously not near enough room, but uh, do with that what you would, would like to do. But here we are, the very first thing that the apostle is saying, now remind you, downstream from love is genuine. Those who love their enemies seek to do good to them and not harm. I'll pick up what Jesus says. Bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. If the world hates you, I'm reading now from John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So we're on notice. We are to expect hostility, pushback, rejection. Expect it. So let's examine this matter of persecution. I'll be just a little lengthier on this. It's planned, so no get too nervous about that. But let's examine what is involved here. What is persecution? We have some popularized sayings about persecution that tend not to help. One is because we're comfortable, we're seated here this morning, we're not in danger of some police cars pulling up and asking to see our identification and uh, give proof of why we should be here or what we're doing and, you know, those kinds of things you read about that are going on in other places. Well, we're not persecuted. We can thank God we're not persecuted. And that's happening in, like, in China. It's happening in Iran. It's happening in, in Russia. It's happening in places where there is a conspicuous, conspicuous governmental hostility to Christianity. Guess what? We're there now. We have that going on. More on that later. But persecution is, according to the dictionary, to treat badly, to do harm again and again, to oppress. Now, I have to be, I have to sweep over a lot of, of thought on this persecution issue, but I want to touch on this one. Persecution can be, of the people of God, it can be traced to the dawn of human history. This didn't begin yesterday. It did not begin in 1968. It began at the very beginning when two brothers were identified in the garden, namely Cain and Abel, outside the garden. <coughs> and what we have in, on record <coughs> in Genesis 4 and the statement in Hebrews 11:4, which let me read that one. <clears throat> By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable, acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was proved commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What happened there in a statement? 
that Cain resented the authentic worship of his brother Abel. So you can mark down that is where the trail of tears begins when it comes to persecution. The persecution of the church, you can see it right on through the Old Testament. You have these vivid examples of it. You have the, uh, the account, and I'll just jump right over, fly over to the time of the prophets. Uh, think of Elijah in, in 1 Kings 19 and 10, and the price that was put on Elijah's head. And it seemed like the, the good guys, <laughs> the prophets of God and God's people were always on the run. They were in a minority. That's the remnant truth in the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, it's obvious. Uh, Daniel and his three friends, and they are brought for a tri- before a tribunal consisting mostly of Nebuchadnezzar. And they were put in a fiery furnace. They were thrown into dental lines. You know these stories. What was going on? You have this satanically driven opposition and hostility to the truth of God. And then when we drop over into the New Testament, many places, examples, but you have the example of a, a dancing girl, Salome, who, wants to, who, who impresses Herod with the movement of her body. I'll give you, and he was a bit tipsy, and I'll give you anything. Up to, and her mother says, ask for the head of John the Baptist, and bringing it in on a platter. If that's not persecution, I don't know what is, because there is the hostility and anger of the system, of political system, against Christians. So there is persecution. Now, when we come to the early church, I want to I do a, a hover over the first couple of centuries. I said church history tells us a lot. When the church began to develop and grow and spread out around the Roman lake, which we know is the, the Mediterranean world, is that persecution began to spread up until about 250 AD. It, for the most part, was localized, very real, and yet you, you can begin to see how certain political factors begin to control the persecution as it became increasingly more um, uh, overpowering, overwhelming. There, was four, there were at least four reasons for this. There was, of course, political persecution right off. The exclusive claims on the moral and spiritual loyalty of those who accepted Christ. Loyalty to Christ or loyalty to Caesar? Which will it be? You remember that the Pharisees tried to trip Jesus up with this one, showing the coin. What do you surrender in the Caesar the Caesars and things to the God that are God's? Well, ultimately the issue there is that the ultimate loyalty is to the sovereign God of the universe, under whom Caesar reigns by the good pleasure of God ruling in heaven. And so you had this ideological tyranny that existed in the first century. That's not a new thing. And it became increasingly vicious. And the exclusive sovereignty of Christ clashed with Caesar's proud claims to exclusive sovereignty. That was the bottom line. And that Christians were to make no sacrifices other than to the Roman emperor. And they had a system that they gradually built in to control the population. Just a pinch of incense on an altar would indicate your loyalty to the government and to Caesar. So you had this clash politically. Ideological tyranny. And Christianity with its exclusive claims. There's no Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
So then you also had religious persecution of the church because the church and the state were so, I use the word church loosely here, I'll just say religion and the state were tightly bound together. And Christians had no idols. Think of the, this, of the contrast that existed. Try to, if you can, put your feet in, in the sandals of the unbelievers. We're going to come to that in a moment. But Christians had no idols. They had little visible paraphernalia of worship. It's very simple. You come into, you want to find a, do a time warp, go to the first century. You want to visit a church? You're in a house. How many people there? Maybe 40, 50 people. And <clears throat> you, don't see, uh, you don't see a lot of paraphernalia. You don't see men in robes. You don't see crucifixes on the wall. You don't see those kinds of things. You see people doing very simple things, singing hymns together, giving testimony, giving witness to their faith in Christ. And I sat in on one of the services that reminded me of so much of this, I'll never forget it. It was in the little village of Mysore in, in India in 1992. And we were invited out to this village, and this village was just saturated with Hindu communists. It was a difficult, horrible place to live. Walking to the place, this little house where they had the church, there was this huge ant hill out in front of a house. I mean, we're talking large. And that was a sacred place because there was a god that lived in there in the form of a cobra. That was its home base in that ant hill. And the Hindu communists, well, quickly to the church, come into the church and it was packed. It was tight quarters. And... Um, they were, they were singing joyfully in the latter room. Never forget this lady standing and asking prayer. Her husband was a, was a drunk, and life, her life was very small and labored and difficult. To try and, she was trying to follow the Savior in that difficult situation and so forth. And, okay, I just say that to remind us that there are groups like this meeting around this planet. It still do, like they did in the first century. But the secrecy of the meetings of the early church brought charges against the church. It began to ramp up the persecution, the, mis the suspicion. And here, these people eat and drink. The, rum the rumors began to spread that Christians killed and ate infants in sacrifice to their God. You say, that's crazy. Well, mm, I'm... I'm want to swerve off to some of the things that are being said about Christians today, and you can see that it's scarily, there are a lot of similarities, the misrepresentations and slander that exists with regard to who Christians are. All right, quickly move on. Social problems, not only religious problems, social problems. This contributed to the persecution of the church, that Christians appeal to the lower classes and slaves. If you were going to the church, you'd probably find, I'm guessing, but what I've read is that you had significant numbers, maybe over half in a congregation could be made up of slaves. Slavery was not the kind of chattel-based slavery that we are familiar, well, we aren't, but which occurred in the 17, 1800s. But it was a slavery still, when you're a slave, you're a slave. <laughs> you don't have your freedom. And so the gospel and the words, oh my, this is another sermon, I watch it. I have to be careful. When you begin to hear the words redemption, and reconciliation and propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God, and that we're one in Christ and so forth. Oh, you can see, oh, oh, I need to know more about this, this freedom that's in Christ and the forgiveness of sin. So Christians separate, and Christians separated themselves from a lot of the pagan gatherings in the first century. 
everything revolved around idols. And so they didn't go to the temples, they didn't go to the theaters, they tended not to go to places of recreation because they were so idolatry saturated that the Christians therefore became seen, they were seen as just non-conforming people. And then you also had economic reasons, just to touch on it. You have an example of this in Acts 19, where Paul goes into the city of Ephesus, and there's a revival that breaks out, and people begin to bring their little, little papyrus uh, 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 prayers and, and uh, magical state, magic statements and so forth, and their little replicas that you could buy. Diana the Ephesians was a massive temple there in Ephesus. And so they begin to bring these uh, uh, articles of, uh, that had to do with idolatry and throw, they threw they had a bonfire. Well, that didn't go over well with the, um, the labor unions who were <coughs> overseeing the production of these idols and people were making a living this way. So Christianity then was seen as a threat to the econo economic well-being of the community. All right, with that said, now let's move back into where Paul is speaking directly to, this, uh, to the Roman church. What are Christians to do? Christians are to do good, to bless those and not curse their adversaries. Don't get into revenge. Don't get into retaliations. Don't get into slander. Christians were to bless instead. Let that settle in on you, what that meant. What does this mean? Living sacrifice? Yeah, talk about losing, winning by losing. And that, so there was no, uh, Christians were not, there was no Spartacus rev, uh, revolution there was no Kirk Douglas running around bringing all the slaves together in the name of Christianity. No, it was not that at all. And so what can we then expect? Let's go get more close. I, mean, I want to really get to a couple of, I think, critical points here on how we were to think and respond to persecution. What can we expect? My own prognostication for what it's worth, I think we'll continue to see increasing social ostracism. If you're a believer in a workplace, wherever it is, you're going to feel increasingly the pressures upon you to conform to ideological tyranny. And you're going to have to sign on. Now, already you can see it, sign on to transgenderism, try and, trend, uh, sign on to non-binary sexual orientation, and, the, and so on. And, and uh, if you're not, there will be these uh, terms that they've been invented to make you that you've got a mental disease. You know, it's homophobic. Uh, or Islamophobic, and so you get into this where uh, all that is is manipulative language. What is it? It's used to make you think you've got a mental problem, you've got a mental illness, and you need treatment, and you're bad, and you're not good for the community. So that, those terms are weaponized. Legal action against Christians, loss of jobs, slander, political uh, repression. It's, okay, I can't, I can't expand on that, but why? because of our identification with Jesus Christ. They hated Jesus, they'll hate us. Jesus is God, and since unbelievers hate God, they would murder him if they could get their hands on him, and they got their hands on him, and they crucified him and rejoiced in it. The hatefulness will be increasingly vented against Christians, and you and I will be, as we are, be called haters and bigots. 
I, I'm not saying you should just uh, celebrate that, but be, understand what is going on. And so it clashes with the standard of the world. Listen to this. Listen to what Jesus said, John chapter 3, 19 and 20. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Does that not tell you something? And so you would say, whoa, it's a wonder we aren't really uh, experiencing more of the opposition and hostility than we are. And so we'll be accused of being bigoted, haters, and racist even now. And this has caught some Christians uh, by surprise, white and black, racist. So it's being weaponized to put Christians in a little neat little cubby hole, and it will be increasingly done so. And so our evangelistic efforts will be seen as attempts to uh, unsettle and to be actually unpatriotic and divide our country and to create disunity. All right, but what is the response of the Christian to persecution or persecutors? I did some listening and some extra reading in the past couple of weeks, and this has helped me, what I'm about to give to you. Uh, these things have been addressed before, but I want to mention several, several important issues, how to think about this. Number one, we are to remind ourselves of God's reaction to us. You want to know how to respond to those who oppose to Christianity and hostile to Christianity? Start here. Remind yourself of God's reaction to us. What we once were, what were we once? We were enemies of God. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Do you see that tone? Here's where we were. And look what God did in coming and approaching us and responding to our hostility and hatred of him. Here, Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There was nothing in us to commend us to God, but God loved us. How, do we deal, how did God deal with us? I just can only give a <clears throat> sideward glance to it, but it's an important story in this line, Luke 15. Remember the story of the prodigal son? And what does he do? He takes his uh, early retirement, he takes his early inheritance, and he runs off with it, and he goes, and he's just wasted on himself. It's totally self-indulgent, just a narcissistic person. Hurts. Surely this must have been very disappointing to the father to say the least but what happens when the son finally comes to the end of himself he comes back and what's the father do we have I'll never forget a sermon I heard once the title of it was which is the running God it was God running to the running to the prodigal and embracing him and having a feast and I bring that up because it tells us how did God respond to us when we were his enemies we had a fist in his face he came into us. He loved us. He was tortured and he was killed for us as, his, as we were his enemies. Now, let me make a second statement here. Why is it that we look at persecution the way we do? Why are we behaving this way? Why am I saying these things? Why is this text setting us up the way it does for this reason? 
I let, me, let me give you the reading in 2 Corinthians 4. This will, this will uh, prep us for this. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of un the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why? Listen, this is not a time. We're not strutting on this. We're not, we're not chest beating. Well, oh, look at us. We're in the know. No, by God's grace, we have a perspective now that is so different than what we once had. And how is that? That we can see the way, the new way we can look at persecutors for what's really going on in their hearts and lives. Why are our persecutors doing this? Why are they spreading these lies? Why are they slandering Christians? Why are Christians losing their jobs? Why has Christianity become a, 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 a villain and an enemy of the state? It is because of the way that the unbeliever thinks. And we thought that way in varying forms. And so we have to understand it. I heard this illustration. It's, uh, I hope it'll work. It helped me to think of it. It's, it's as if you had somebody that you, a person, and you know well, or may in your family, and they're insane. I mean, really insane. It just, their mind's just gone. And, so, and how would you respond to that kind of person? I would hope that you would feel some pity, some sorrow, and you would, ad you would ad uh, adapt your response and your behavior to this person because they're out of their mind. They don't know who they are and what they're doing, that kind of thing. So the persecutors are duped by Satan. They're blinded. They don't know what they are doing. This is not the occasion, a platform for pride. This is the platform for humility and for understanding the state of mind of those who are so hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, as you may respond to hostile family members, you can't, what do you do? You may have situations like that when you get with a certain group, uh, however your family gets together and who's there and who's not, you may very well have some in your family who are not too happy with your Christianity and they've let it be known. How do you handle that? Is it uh, you annoy them? Well, what do you do? This is the kind of passage we need to look at and think about. So, we'll feel sorry for those who persecute us. They're blinded. We desire their salvation. We pray for them. We, uh, that they'll be delivered. Remember, what did Jesus say? He, this one really puts you on the hook. It's in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus goes through all of these responsibilities and he says, be perfect for I am perfect. Now, I've read a lot of commentaries on this one right here, trying to you know, well, we can't be perfect, so what does he mean? He, he said, be perfect. All right, work on that one for a while. <laughs> that's, the, that's the standard. And, and so, as Jesus prayed on the cross, what did he pray on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He saw them as they were. And remember Stephen? That's a brutal scene. You read in that Acts 7. And that marvelous sermon, all oh, right on, Stephen. Yes, that's truth. And they pick up stones. And I hate the thought of what it's like being stoned to death. We're not talking about throwing uh, uh, pebbles. We're talking about some significant stones. 
and he's dying. And here's what it says. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died and went in the presence of Christ. See, this is the tone of the way the scriptures want us to look at this. Bless, don't curse, don't seek uh, vengeance and payback. We've got to be careful here. You've got to watch out the kind of news you watch as Christians because there are plenty of those who are rallying the forces and to oppose the things that are coming against us. We will get to this issue, so you, you have some legitimate thoughts if you're thinking down the line. Well, what do we do with all that's going on that's unconstitutional, that should be addressed in the courts, and there should be legal action, and so on and so on? We'll get to that in Romans 13 in a few weeks. All right, I told you I was going to be a little extra there in time. I want to do this. I'm going to read you something. I want us to pray. Prayer meeting time. <laughs> This is, it's dated uh, in March of 16, this year, India. Pressure increasing on the Tamil Nadu churches. In Tamil Nadu, the number of persecution events rose dramatically in 2022. Pastors and evangelists have been chased away from villages, beaten and robbed. Many churches conducted in rented buildings are being forced to close by Hindu radicals, pressuring property owners. Because of this, Christian congregations have been scattered, and pastors who have dedicated themselves to full-time ministry are struggling to support their families. They are praying for the ability to purchase land where church buildings can be constructed so that they are not dependent on renting space for worship services. They are also seeking prayer for their families through difficult financial challenges. That is in Tamil Nadu in India now. I want to pray for them. Lord, these dear brothers and sisters in Christ, though nameless and faceless to us, they're not to you. Undergoing at this time, well, it's already Monday there. Well, God, I pray for them. They'll be strong in the faith. I, I think of that little congregation I visited back in Mysore in India so many years ago. Keep them strong. Thank you for the Bible studies that they have engaged in and the faithful pastors and what they've suffered, Lord, in your name with joy and drawing attention to the joy and the forgiveness and eternal life that's in Christ. Keep them faithful. Provide them with these spaces to build upon property so they can have just some modest dwellings where they can meet and worship and teach your word and reach out into the community. Protect them from the evil one. Give them great courage for you in Christ's name. Amen. I told you we we're going to be a little extra one on that one. I knew we would. I just, I couldn't fly by all that. And so let's, let's consider on. I'm trying to show us from this text how love walks and talks and behaves. We're not through with us. Okay, let's go to the next movement here and find that, look, the apostle says this, that love enters into his, the joys and sorrows of others. Verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, if you mistakenly think, oh, okay, we can coast a little bit here. This is easy. Oh, no, it's not. Well, let's, back up. let's back into it. What's easier? 
Is it easier to weep with somebody who has gone through a loss and in grief and difficulty or rejoice with those who've been successful and we haven't? Okay. I may want to squirm a little bit on that one. Well, let's, let's look at it. There is to be identification and participation in the joy of others over the Lord's favor and blessing. Now, this is the harder thing to do of the two things here, rejoicing and weeping. And so someone gets a promotion, public recognition, receives a gift. This brings us into confrontation with ourselves. We went, I'll be very brief in this statement, was in a meeting last night for about four hours where someone was given honor to whom honor was due. It was Bill Thorne and Patty for 50-something years of the influences of their li- influence of their lives on a lot of young people and adults now. Seems to me coaching since the 50s. Well, uh, rejoice. We were rejoicing. Now, I confess, I began to get a little tired about into that fourth hour, but uh, <laughs> uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. And can we do that with un- unalloyed uh, emotion? And, we, you know, we have to work on ourselves, our thinking. We have to work on our thinking and to give honor to whom honor is due. Maybe that person did speak too long. Maybe they could have shut up sooner. You know, all, all, all those kinds of things. But we are to, but we're also to weep with those who weep. And we're not to rel- uh, find relish in the misfortune of others. Uh, you know, there's a little something that can, it's, it's got its own special little closet in our hearts. You know, somebody did you wrong, or you, they just seem to be just risk gliding right along, and you think they might get something they deserve. Watch out. You know what? This story is moving every time I come across it. Jesus is told that Lazarus is sick. For two days, he doesn't show up. He lets him die. This really gets complicated. Mary and, and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, they are just outside of themselves, beyond, beside themselves. Why did you, you could have gotten here sooner, and he could have been, he could have been healed. They weren't thinking that he could be brought back from the dead. <laughs> this was actually the son of God. And so, but Jesus comes on the scene. This is the part that really catches me. Jesus comes on this scene. I mean, people are, what do you you think? They're weeping. They're crying. They've lost a brother, a friend. And Jesus looks, and you know what it says? Jesus said, Jesus wept. He cried. What do you think he cried? I think Jesus cried, full human, fully God. Fully human, fully God, no sin. He saw what sin has done in the death that comes as a consequence of sin and what it has done in ravaging the human race. And he was friends with it. He, he met in their home with them often and, and meals with them. And he responded, you would, when you, this is a hard part when you go to funerals, you can be okay and you see somebody crying and that's it, the trap door opens. <laughs> and Jesus saw this and thought, oh, what sin has done in death. He, it was weeping with those who weep. Remember, we belong to the same body. We're all in this together. First, look, 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 20, and 26. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. In verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Aha, that's it, nails it. That's where we are to be. And now, to get there, to do these things, we have to go to the school of concern for others. Have you been to that school? 
Have you gotten any kind of progress going there? And it, what it's going to mean is you're going to grieve. You're going to rejoice. You want people to rejoice with you, whether it's the birth of a new child or a grandchild or whatever, and various things, rejoice. Somebody has come to Christ in your family, somebody you've been praying for. Oh, I want everybody to know this. Thank the Lord. Can we rejoice in that? So we rejoice when the lost come to Christ. We rejoice when God heals, provides, and answers prayer. The quintessential example of this is Jesus Christ. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What was happening is Luke twenty-two forty-two. You know what Jesus was doing? He was entering into our suffering, into our pain. I'm talking cosmic, universally so. He was tortured and killed because he was weeping with us. And that's where it took him in his own death. And so John, well, mentioned the passage in, in John with regard to Mary and Jesus wept. So we weep when others grieve. We weep when sickness comes. We weep over sin and repentance. Second Corinthians eleven twenty nine. You know, Paul was a muscle guy, spiritually muscle guy. He was strong. He was strong. You consider what he did, where he went, how he spoke, and he was just persistent. Who is weak? Paul here's talking. Who is weak? And I am not weak. <laughs> Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. Paul is saying, I'm, I'm weak. I have this concern for the churches. I have it. It's heavy on my heart. That's who I am. I'll just mention a little something here. I don't want to get lost in sentimentality, but it, it, it worked. It, it helped, taught us something. It's a very teachable moment in what we saw. You know, dogs are empathetic creatures. Do you know that? All right, we, we've, we've been introduced to dogdom in, for the last year or so, and again, and we've inherited, uh, or inherited, can't get into too many details, but we have a little, uh, little Shih Tzu, and just a perfect dog for older folks, and low, low maintenance, doesn't make a lot of noise, only barks when somebody comes to the door, and it's, it's just kind of benign, and um, Beth was, <laughs> she, we got the news a couple of weeks ago, uh, the news that her brother Cliff had died. And Beth is leaning up against the counter in the kitchen. And she's on the phone. And I, I went and got my phone. I said, this is worth remembering in sight. And the little dog, Munson is his name, Munson Dial. And he comes in. He's picking up on things. He comes in, gets down on the floor right there at, at Beth's foot and puts his head on her foot. <laughs> I, you know, it reminded me of, now, we're not dogs, but I say, you know, if dogs have some measure of empathy, what is Christ? He says, could you weep with those who weep? Because Jesus has real concern. And, he, and I think in the way he's made creation, it, it shows up there. Okay, I can't stay on that, but uh, that, that little episode touched us. All right, let's, let's move to this uh, next example of love. We, I'm trying to put feet and legs on love here. I hope you're seeing it. How do we respond to our persecutors? What do we respond? How do we respond to people who rejoice? How do we respond to people who weep and are grieving? Now, let's look at this uh, uh, 
next feature of love here, that love, love seeks to live in harmony with one another. Verse 16. Be of the, the New American Standard has it, be of the same mind one toward another. I wrote one of my morning minutes on this last week, so I'm going to hitchhike on it just a little bit. And uh, I was thinking about harmony in music. Uh, sometimes I wonder if it's, a, if it's a lost, no pun intended, if it's a lost chord. That uh, uh, harmony is a beautiful thing to hear. And the harmony in the church is a beautiful thing to see. And Christians have to work at it. You've got to think right. If love thinks, love thinks in the right way. Feelings follow thinking. And so we have this example in James 2. Don't show partiality to people who have more over against those who have less. Don't kiss up to people who can give you something in return for your attention. And here's another person. They don't have anything to give you in return for your attention that you give to them other than they are thankful and are encouraged by it. We have the same Bible. We have the same Holy Spirit. It's the glory of God. And so, therefore, this weak believer, strong believer thing in Rome as well as in, in Corinth, there were those who were convinced that they couldn't touch or go near any kind of meat or you know, food that is contaminated with uh, idol worship of one, in one way or another. Just you don't, you don't buy that meat at the meat market. Probably most of these were converted Jews who came out of this hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, there are no other gods. But then you had these Gentiles, oh, these freestylers, many of them. Uh, hey, what's the big deal? Hey, hey, I know a good filet mignon when I see it, and I know what it tastes like. And I want the best meat. I want that center cut. That's what I want. And so they saw no offense in this. Well, hey, so you're going to have a church picnic, oh, are you? And uh, what are you going to do with these clashes that come up? Well, this is in the background of this. Now, just understand this before we leave it. And th this is different. Having convictions around which we center common cause. We are to have common cause in our thinking. We are to share agreement with biblical truth. That's where we share our agreement and we are one mind. That's not the same as all become coming of one opinion. Opinions, I'm very familiar with opinions. I've got a lot of them, and I can, I'll share them with you if you want, when you want me to. Uh, but they're not the Common cause is living and working together on the basis of what God's Word teaches. Opinions can be, they don't have to be, but they can be influenced and affected by just our own personal preferences, our backgrounds, and so forth. So harmony is to characterize the church. Next, love is not pretentious. It's not pretentious. Verse 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. The ESV puts it, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. So to say it simply is that there's no aristocracy in the church. You know, this really began to infect the church in the second century. It, the church, <laughs> human beings being what we are, and you get this hierarchy beginning to come in. And you begin to get, you begin to get uh, uh, pastors who begin to be called bishops, and bishops, cardinals. And then as you get on down to the Middle Ages, <coughs> you have this incredible hierarchy in the church. 
And, you know, to the point where you're finally going to come and kiss the papa's ring and all this kind of stuff. So contrary, so contrary to where the church functioned in the first century and following its orders and not pretentious and associating with the lowly. I, this word associate really got my attention because I know that it shows up. It shows up in Galatians in chapter 2 and verse 13, and it's used there to describe Barnabas, who, who the, the believers, the Jewish believers, began to pull back from the Gentile believers over this issue of food. And that's when Paul comes on the scene. You know, remember, Paul rebukes him. <coughs> he rebukes Peter. For, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? You're just misrepresenting the gospel. Okay, but it was hypocrisy. And Galatians says, even Barnabas, Barnabas watch it here, this word associate, was carried away with the hypocrisy. I just want to illustrate this word, which he uses here, translate associate, to be carried along with the lowly, to be moved by, to mix among, to rub elbows with, to talk with, to pray for, to be friends with, that you don't, you don't create your circle of camaraderie and friendship just with people who, in the back of your mind, you may think they have a little different social status and such. Not at all. Oh, oh, listen, Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Did you get that one mind? This is in a lot of places in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 6.17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I will tell you, <clears throat> snobbery will kill a church. And, uh, and there are people who have their sights set on snobs. <laughs> they have snob detectors. <laughs> and uh, that's another problem. You can certainly come along in your upbringing and you've been uh, you've had to deal with people, power people, and people, you, you're a little suspicious of anyone who has authority and so forth. I lived in a family like that, come up in the Great Depression, suspicious of anybody who's got more money and more than we have. Be careful, be careful that you don't get infected by these things. So what do you do? You wash one another's feet. That's what Jesus did. Came in that room, took those ugly toenails, dirt in between the toes, and feet that then, you know, then with sandals and you got all kind of animal excrement out in the streets and Jesus just sit, gets down on his hands and knees and whips out a towel and takes that basin and washes feet phew, and washes their feet and he says this is what you to do with one another. That means you forgive one another, you love one another and you don't get into preferential treatment, not at all. Oh, there's so much more to be said here. I, have, I, have, I must conclude, though. But number five. Look at verse 16. He says, Do not be wise in your own estimation. <laughs> Love is not conceited. Don't let the smoke of self-importance get in your eyes. That's the idea. Here. It's, uh, I want to tell you something. You know, there's a monster. There is a monster that can get into this room. I, it, it, I'm, it's here in some way or another. A monster. And this monster 
may actually have a rented room in your own heart. God forbid. But this monster can get into the church, come in the back door, come in the front door, come through the windows if it has to. This is this monster. And this monster presents himself or herself as someone who's better than others, uh, gets easily disgusted, and um, has little tolerance for differences. It's my way or the highway. This is the monster. Oh, did I give you the name of the monster? Pride. Pride. And it comes in for some heavy blows from God in Scripture. It's a killer. It's not conceited. So, oh Lord, deliver us from self-promotion. Lord, show us how important it is. You know what we do have? I guess I'm on a little bit of a dog track this morning. We have a barking dog. You've got one. Did you know that? You do. You know what your barking dog is? If you're a Christian, I'm not comparing the Holy Spirit to a dog, but just bear with me. We have a barking dog. That if our conscience is influenced by the Word of God, you have a biblically constructed conscience, and that goes on to the day you die, where you're sensitive to right and wrong and all the nuances of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the hand in the glove of the Word. And that's the barking dog. What's the barking dog? If you begin to stray away from what is being said here about love. That's, okay, that's, well, do, you, do you have that sensitivity that, that the Spirit of God produces within us so that love will have feet and legs which others can see and say, I want to know about, more about this love. And I can say, for God so loved the world and he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Oh, our Lord and God, thank you for your demonstration of your love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were un ungodly and they're certainly not worthy. Thank you, Lord. Now, God, I pray that Oh, Lord, you, you are sovereign. You will move us out into those places, family gatherings and thoughts and conversations and church life, and just renew us and refresh us again in putting legs and feet on love that demonstrates your love for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.